Hello and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode we talk to Terry Dunn. As an activist, Terry has been involved in anarchist groups and the anti-war and environmental and social justice movements. Terry has a PhD in sociology and an interest in the historical sociology of social movements. He has written particularly on agrarian social movements and his work has been published in journals such as SARE, Critical Historical Studies and Rural History. Terry also writes and hosts the Peelers and Sheep Rebel Tales from the Land podcast. We'll first discuss Terry's own activism from the anti-war movement, the non-hierarchical environmental and social justice movement Gluhschacht, and the broader activist context at the time. We'll then discuss Terry's research in the area of agrarian agitation during the Irish Revolutionary Period, which is explored in Terry's podcast, Pillars and Sheep, and how that fits with the more traditional narratives of Irish history. Terry's podcast explores a fascinating history. Uh, look up Pillars and Sheep in your podcast app, or you'll find it at pillarsandsheep.ie. You'll find the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website or by emailing contact at leftarchive.ie. You'll also find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. So thanks again to Terry for talking to us, and thank you for listening. First, uh, thanks for talking to us, Terry. Um, so to start, can you tell us a bit about your own uh, political involvement and uh, what drew you into political activity? Um, thanks for having me. Um, first of all, I've uh, uh, long enjoyed the uh, Irish Left Archive. Um well, my first political involvement would be going back to the time of the first Gulf War, or well, the first um, American Gulf War in 1991. And that would have been the first uh, demonstrations I attended. Um, I was only like, I was only in secondary school, just into secondary school at the time. Mm. Um, went along to a few of the demonstrations in Dublin. Uh, it's it provides a kind of an interesting contrast between um, Gulf War Mark One in 1991 and Gulf War Mark Two in 2003, and the different sorts of campaigns there were then. Um, I would have been more involved in 2003. In 1991, I was just going to a few demonstrations and stuff. Now, in 1991, there were some protests in Shannon, but I have no. I'd have no memory of that, and I can't remember it being a major, a major focus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I went back and looked at things, and there was a dull vote saying that um, Shan Airport could be used for military um, flights by the U.S. military in January, and there had in January 1991, and in August 1990, there were a few flights as well. But there wasn't, in terms of the anti-war movement, there wasn't the focus on Shannon that there was in 2003. It's an interesting distinction. Um, there was two There was two groups in 1991. There was a Gulf Peace Committee, which was more the kind of parliamentary left, and there was a no to war in the Gulf, which was more the kind of far left and was dominated by the socialist workers' movement. The Gulf Peace Committee was for sanctions, which... Uh, hasn't dated well, given that um, sanctions had a devastating effect on Iraqi society over the 1990s and like led to you know mass deaths, um, along with the bombing. And the no to war in the Gulf, then its line was more being anti-imperialist, okay, but anti-imperialist, yeah, its focus was being anti-imperialist, and it was criticised for not being anti-imperialist enough, 
which often really translated into being um, pro the then Iraqi government um, because of the whole thing that I think it's a Trotskyist line where you want to support the victory of the third world side over the imperialist power because then you'll see more capitalist industrialization develop in the third world. You'll have a working class movement develop as a consequence of that and you'll be closer to socialism. Um, Which is, I mean, I I wouldn't dismiss that. It's an interesting kind of thing you can debate. You could look at the the victory of the so-called communist forces like in the Chinese Civil War was a contributing factor to the industrialization of East Asia. There's now a working class movement in East Asia. We think the working class movement is gone. It's just shifted to from the North Atlantic to the uh, to the um, Pacific. So I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss that whole thing. But uh, I don't think going around the place with a victory to Iraq um, placard in Dublin in 1991 is going to make a um, significant contribution to uh, to uh, to the uh, Iraqi defense effort. And it's actually just going to make you look a bit uh, crazy, um, in my honest opinion, not to say that I haven't done things that in hindsight might look a bit crazy as well. Um, but then when we come to 2003, it was much more of a focus on the Irish government's participation in the, um, the war effort and much more much more about direct action in Shannon Airport. And I think it's uh, that's an important uh, important difference to maybe talk about. And I think there was a generational shift there and a shift to a to a to a new type of uh, to a new type of left politics. Right. And you th- and you think that second one was more effective, obviously you feel it was a more effective way forward. Well, I think the focus in nineteen ninety one as regards the kind of far left parties, it was recruitment and it was there was recruitment fodder, which is what I was, and there was a kind of, there seemed to me to be a kind of competition between the militant tendency and the socialist workers movement um, about, about getting the recruits from this campaign, right? Mm-hmm. The way it seemed to me from my, uh, my my perspective then as one of those potential recruits, which mm-hmm. all just came across as a little bit odd. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can, you can build a movement that way. I think the way to build a movement is to have actual practical outcomes to have a real impact in the real world. Now, in terms of the focus on Shannon Airport in 2003, in the 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004 period, yeah, maybe the idea that it was possible to stop US military refueling at Shannon Airport was way too ambitious, Mm. but um, it was aimed at having a practical impact which I I think is the sort of thing that can uh, can empower people and can build a movement. Yeah, and yeah. um, I would say in January and February two thousand and three, a number of the commercial companies carrying U.S. troops through Shannon Airport withdrew from Shannon Airport. So there was yeah. the beginnings of a pra- the practical. Um, yeah. Now, who's to know if if things went out differently, that could have continued on into. Um, into in, in spring and summer of, uh, of 2003. Yeah. yeah. So it was, a, it was a different focus. It's, it's yeah. interesting how that, how that came about. And after Shannon, after that first, well, it wasn't Shannon, obviously, at the beginning of the Gulf War. After that, where did you go politically? I mean, in, in general terms. Well, towards the late 90s, um, I would have become involved in the anarchist movement. Right. Um, I was... 
involved with an anarcho-syndicalist group um, called Organize, which was based out of Belfast. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I would have written a little bit for Workers Solidarity, which was the publication of the Workers Solidarity Movement. Um, and also after that, I was involved in a group called the Anarchist Federation, which briefly had a branch in Ireland, but was mostly um, based in the adjacent island. Mm. And I was also then as you come, I went to university as a, uh, as a mature student and I was involved in an organization, a network called Blue Shot, which um, united different environmental groups and uh, ecology groups and world world societies and um, in universities principally, but then it kind of carried on as people um, graduated from the university. Um, kind of intended, I think, to be a bridge between you know, kind of people who were in the university and people who, had, who, 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 who were out of it. So a lot of it was around the kind of the auto-globalization mm. um, era. Uh, I first would have encountered Blue Shock in, um, they were running buses to the uh, G8 demonstrations in general. So that's where I would have first encountered, encountered them. And it was really impressive, okay? Because you were coming from the 1990s, right? Like I would have not been very involved in a lot of stuff until the end of the 90s, but the 1990s was a barren period, yeah? Mm. And like all of a sudden to be to be with bus loads of people going to these massive demonstrations in uh, in Italy, which has a very different movement history. Yeah, was it was it was it, was a very um, kind of impressive and inspiring thing. Yeah, yeah. So so obviously in a sense, like for you politically, the nineties quite quite isolating in a sense, but then the two thousands obviously more communal experience. Yeah, I think you've mentioned before that uh, the Zapatista left movement also had a bearing to play in that as well. Okay, yeah, well, I suppose what you, what you, in terms of that difference between 1991 and 2003, and what mm. you commentate in the period between 98, 1999, 2001, you have, and it's not the only reason that this that the, there was differences, okay? Because mm. I, when you come to the, the, the time of uh, 2001, 2002, 2003, and Shannon, there were people coming from lots of different political directions, okay? Yeah like the people that were involved in the sermon and the planes were coming from a direction that was maybe different from, from where I, from where I was coming. Mm. And there also had been like, there had been demonstrations, small demonstrations at Shannon in 1991. And there was people say coming up from court or from more like traditional left backgrounds or, or, mm. or, or Republican backgrounds. But for us, from where I was, and I'm just speaking my own kind of personal story, but it, um, there was a, there was a cohort there. It was coming from a Zapatista to influence left. Right. right, it was more of an orientation on direct action and more of an orientation on um, horizontal, non-hierarchical forms of organisation. Right. Yeah. So, just to for 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 for, for clarity, um, when I say direct action, it's not another word for militancy. Yeah, mm. it's another word for um, going out and doing it for yourself, as opposed to asking someone else to do it for you. Yeah. Lobby, not like taking the action as opposed to lobbying, or maybe a focus if this was the water charges on non-payment of water charges, or or, or or trying to stop the installation of water meters, as opposed to putting forward a candidate for the door, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, and then non-horizontal, tends to horizontal and non-hierarchical, direct democratic forms of organisation. I think for two reasons, a good one, which is the, the a focus on a prefigurative focus and a focus on empowerment, yeah, and um, 
and a bad reason, which is a focus on not being like a Leninist party or not being like an environmental NGO, right? Yeah. So, which is a reaction which I think can push people too far in another direction as well, yeah? Mm. So that was where that was coming from. And there was, uh, there was also, at the time, involved in lots of the Global Days of Action a, um, at the, with the summer protests and so forth in the G8 at Genoa and... Um, was it J18 in uh, June 1999? There was a, a network called People's Global Action, um, which came out of meetings which had been set up by the Zapatistas in uh, Chiapas. There was a meeting in Mexico and later a meeting in Spain. I don't know if People's Global Action itself had that much of an influence in Ireland, but its kind of image had an inspiration or its its hallmarks, right, which, which were its statement of principles, so people were organizing around these um, these hallmarks. And there was also Shannon Peace Camp, which I wasn't involved in, um, but I would have been later working with people who were. The 90s were a barren period if you were on the left, right? Um, but if you were an, more of an environmentalist and you were coming from that perspective, it was a different thing, yeah? And you had the uh, anti-roads um, protests in England, so there was a degree of influence uh, and inspiration from there, which I think fed in, not not in terms of actual people, but in terms of people getting the news from somewhere else and being being influenced by it and being mm. inspired by it. I think that had a, that fed into Shannon Peace Camp. I think we had the right focus on empowerment, okay, mm. through encouraging popular action as opposed to um, electing people to the doll or. Mm. Um, raising money for to pay a lawyer to take a court case over a particular development or something like that. Mm. And I think we had the right focus and a prefiguration and the right focus on not having organizations run by a self and perpetuating oligarchy. But we had the right general focus, but particular means we adopted were not always the right way of going about things. Yeah. yeah. And I think people can get too fixated on or make a fetish of particular modes of organization, right? Mm. So if you're if you're organizing or attempting to organize in a horizontal or non-hierarchical way, mm. it's not an automatic process, okay? There's all kinds of problems with that, right? Yeah. There's problems where, first of all, how represented, like how democratic something is, is not just a matter of its internal organization. It's a matter yeah. of how representative that is, right? Yeah. And if you're not bringing in new, broader layers, actually, you're just 20 people in the room having a nice meeting, okay? Yeah. And there's problems in terms of the if you have an assembly-style organizational structure where everyone is expected to come to the meeting and have their, have their speak, have their input, mm. there's a problem with how accessible that is to people, yeah? That what you're you're actually demanding from people is that they're kind of like super activists. Yeah. So you're becoming less representative uh, as a result. Uh, and there's a problem as well with informal hierarchy where an organization can actually work through friendship networks. Okay. Now there's a um, friendship networks, or if you're, if you're in a particular role, yeah. And it's more of a public role, you're seen as the person to talk to. So if mm -hmm. you're, trying to make links with another group or organization or bringing people in. And um, I mean, you as in the group as a whole, the people coming in are, are finding that person who's 
the maybe the, 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 the person who was in the role of speaking at a public meeting or writing the indie media story, they're looking for that person to talk to, not the person who has somewhat a very important practical job, but um, yeah. not, in, not in a public role. So it's not a... It's a constant kind of a, a constant struggle and a constantly a learning process. Um, I think mostly the libertarian left has moved to a kind of more of a delegate structure than an assembly style structure in the last 10 years since Occupy. But that's outside my own um, personal experience. Yeah, It's a better way of doing things in terms of prefiguration and empowerment and having a democratic movement. Yeah. And if you're a socialist, you have to believe in democracy because... You can't have common ownership without common participation in the decision-making process. It's a better way of doing things than if you see an organization that's had the same leadership for years, right? But it's not a perfect way of doing things, and it's a way that we have to be learning Mm. all the time. And We make the path by walking, as as, as someone once said. I probably carved with the quote. Yeah. (laughs) I think you're also, were you slightly involved in Intermedia? Oh, no, you were talking about Intermedia as well and, and its role during that period. Oh, yeah. The role, the, like, I was, like, so in 1991, like, I would have been engaged in, 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 with, with the left press, right? But as I say, I genuinely cannot remember there being the focus on the, the, the boots on the ground, the place yeah. where, the, where, where the tire um, hits, the, uh, hits the asphalt down in, uh, down in Shannon. But the difference, a difference was in 2001, 2002, 2003, was you had the plane spotters in Shannon, okay? And you had, through Indie Media, which was a which was a network of websites set up out of that auto-globalization um, movement. Um, through Indie Media, you had a mechanism for those, the people doing the research and monitoring the, uh, the flights on the ground in Shannon, to communicate to a to a wider a wider constituency, yeah. and the the reporting on indie media as regards Shannon and as regards Rossport was um, significant. I think I don't necessarily think a either an an international. If anyone was listening to this from an international audience or a younger audience would appreciate mm. it, we're, we're talking about before social media, and we're talking about a country which does not have any kind of a uh, kind of mainstream left press, okay? Like, not even The Guardian. Yeah. yeah. So Shannon, either Shannon or Rossport were not being covered in any other kind of media, yeah, to any great extent. And also, I mean, it was on, I mean, it's, it's, it, was, it was using the new information communication te- technology. You did not have to find a paper seller, yeah? Yeah. No? Um, or a paper seller did not have to find you, rather. Um, <laughs> and the left press has its own filter as well. You know, but indie media was a means by which the uh, the people doing that research on the ground in, in China were able to communicate the, the, their message very uh, very effectively and very uh, very detailed and, and well researched manner. You you were directly involved in Rossport for a couple of years or a year or two, weren't you? I was involved um, in Rossport in um, two thousand five two thousand six. Yeah, we would have had a few um, public meetings um, in Galway on Rossport before then, but I was uh, was principally involved in 2005, 2006. And the first thing that I was kind of saw myself doing there was kind of copying what the plane spotters had done with Shannon in indie media as I was taking photographs of the development there, speaking to concerned members of the community, 
putting the interviews and the photographs up on the indie media and reaching that that wider constituency. Um, it's a few years ago now, so for people who don't know, um, Rossport, uh, this is a area in um, Northwest Mayo on the West Coast, and there was a proposed high pressure uh, gas pipeline and uh, online inland gas refinery, um, which I think I think I've been ongoing since 1996, and it had um, there was a community opposition going back a good few years before 2005 2006. To explain my research, right, I would, I'm just going to grab a quote from Marx and grab a quote from E.P. Thompson. The quote from Marx is, forgive the sexist language, men make their own history, but not just as they choose, yeah? Mm. And the quote from E.P. Thompson is, the working class was present at its own making. So where my research is coming from is understanding popular agency in shaping society. Movements are not just mechanical responses to economic conditions. They're cultured, yeah? They're based on political understandings that people have developed. And also, there's an agency structure dialectic in that society is being shaped to unintended, not, well, unintended and intended contingent uh, consequences of class struggle, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of a long-term, there's a kind of a long-term project of understanding how we've had a particular development of capitalism in Ireland, particular development of agrarian capitalism in Ireland, arising out of a long history of social conflict and of colonialism, and also understanding how collective identities and socio-political consciousness have shifted over time, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's that second one, which was the major focus of my PhD, which I went on to do after the time in Rosport, and looked at threatening letters, okay? And threatening letters in the 19th century were an anonymous or pseudonymous and means of communicating demands, okay? In employment disputes sometimes or agrarian disputes over land. And, and people sometimes think of it as a kind of trolling or something, Right is the is the is the is the kind of way people understand it when I when I'm when, I, when I'm talking about it. But what we're talking about with a threatening letter is much more something like a leaflet, yeah. So it's much more something that like what you would actually have in the Irish Left Archive, and right. it's they're among the earliest source documentary sources that we have from the ordinary people of Irish society. Okay, I mean there's other things as well like ballads, for example. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And so my 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 my, my PhD uh, research was was, was analysing um, analysing collection of threatening letters. Yeah. So in those two kind of like long term projects, I um, yeah, well, there's books coming eventually, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but Peters and Sheep then was more it was more of a, more of a little side project. Because you'd written before for uh, History Ireland and uh, for a number of places on some of the subjects that feed into you know Peters and Sheep. Well, the, with Peters and Sheep, at least with the, the the current focus on the hidden histories of the Irish Revolution, mm. um, it kind of started life as a sort of a local history project um, mm. on the on the um, rural labour movement and on farm labourers organising um, mm. with a particular interest in South Kildare because that's where I have um, family connections to. Yeah, and then I was uh, I was talking. To uh, to a friend of mine, James, as to what we 
would it be possible to create some kind of media um, mm. around this and reach a reach a, a, a broader audience? And um, mm. he's like podcast, right? And so okay. we have uh, the Peters and Chief podcast, and that was the the first episode was on the the Meet and Kildare Farm Labour Strike in nineteen nineteen, and yeah, been continuing on since then. Yeah, and it's it's building up into a very solid body of work and research. The thesis you kind of have behind it is, and you say, I mean, you don't make any secret of this, it's the sense that you're offering stories and narratives that perhaps are even at odds with the broader narratives that people know of, particularly the Irish Revolution, the Irish Revolutionary Period and so forth. And because you're taking, your one is rooted specifically inside the agrarian movements and agrarian agitation. But it seems to spin off from there into very interesting and unexpected directions. Well, I kind of framed it around the agrarian, first of all, because from the early 19th century into, what, the 1950s, 1960s, mm. in Ireland, outside the northeast, agriculture was the main industry, right? Mm. And the largest like in the 1917-1923 period, the largest um, employment sector for the members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, yeah, was farm labour, right? Farm labourers, like there's 10 of them for every one docker, right? Yeah. And then when you get on to, to, to other occupied, other um, places of employment, like the, where were the Soviets? They were in agri-processing sites, okay? Mm. Dockers were very important to the history of the transport union. What were the dockers exporting? But uh, but cattle, right? So this is this is where people were 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 living their living their lives, and this is what people's working lives was. But it also it allows you to go in lots of different directions. Yeah. So there's a couple of um, uh, upcoming podcasts on taking a bit of an environmental turn, um, with the current predicament with the pandemic and looking at the um. Uh, origins of zoonotic diseases, zoonotic diseases being diseases that come to us from animals, which is all got to do with the spaces that animals are, are live in, either farms or forests, and how we're changing them, which is also an agrarian issue. So you see, you can you can you can broaden out and use Bring a lot agrarian in, yeah. framework. But in terms of the Irish Revolution, uh, to get back to the to get back to your question or the main the main focus of your question, we have an image of the Irish Revolution as a military event. Okay. It's presented a useful image in terms of uh, legitimating the uh, Irish state um, and in terms of in, ter- in terms of actually making the nationalist case. Mm. Right? We're a real legitimate nation, okay? Here we have our army, yeah? And also, it makes the separatist case that we're oppressed by Britain, the fact that we had to recourse to arms to expel Britain, right? Um now, maybe to us today, that seems kind of strange. But if you go back to 100 years ago and you look at the newspapers, mm-hmm. like there's this rhetoric, not necessarily connected to, this, to the uh, Irish Republican Army, but just rhetoric about um, a farm labourer's public meeting or about a, a cattle drive to do agrarian agitation, where it's, it's all about martial manhood, yeah? And where even there was an, anti, uh, an anti-conscription protest during the opposition to conscripting uh, Irish men into the uh, to the slaughter in the Western Front. The journalist, the analogy he takes for this anti-conscription demonstration is the Battle of Fontenoy, yeah, yeah. where the, um, the, 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 the Irish Brigade in the service of France defeated um, the, yeah. the, the Hanoverian uh, British in like sometime in the 18th yeah. century, right? Like you're protesting war, but it's, it's a battle, right? 
And this is the this is the kind of image of masculinity and the image of nationhood that was predominant in the 20th century. Okay. Mm. So and then you have this you have this gun fetish and you've got this focus on the ambush as a military engagement, right? Mm. And it leaves out so much. Okay. It leaves out some of the stuff that Peters and Sheep uh, that I've been focused on with the Peters and Sheep folk podcast, like rural labor, mm. um, agrarian movements, the international context. Mm. And which I've been exploring by using the uh, Irish regiments in the British Army, which we can mm. get back to. Um, but it actually leaves out much more than that. Like, I mean, there's uh, it often leaves out women, um, even women with a military role. And like, there's lots of like new research um, and new uh, edited volumes coming out on, on that. And um, it leaves mm. out northeast, northeast Ulster because mm. what was going on in the northeast, northeast of Ulster doesn't really fit with that sort of ambush image and is maybe a little bit more complicated and um, yeah it leaves out popular mobilization in the separatist movement like the anti-conscription campaign in 1918 the doll courts mobilization in support of political prisoners like it leaves out stuff that's not even that's not necessarily stuff that kind of from a left-wing perspective we'd want to necessarily embrace like the doll courts which often mm. a, 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 was part of, of civil dis- disobedience and and and, and refusal and rejection of the of uh, of the crown, but was also played a sort of a counter revolutionary role in terms of suppressing agrarian protest, or like a lot of those demonstrations, and in support of political prisoners. People's form of mobilisation here was saying the rosary. Yeah, it's not necessarily something that we're we're as this kind of secular left we're going to be bigging up, mm. but it was the 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 the, the, the popular protest of the time. And the other thing is, it actually even leaves out the IRA, right? Because the typical activity of the typical IRA volunteer, which, and according to a study that's coming from a military, particularly military history perspective, a study making, made by an American um, American military officer, the most efficient activity of the typical IRA volunteer was blocking roads, okay? It was digging trenches across roads and chopping trees down to block roads, okay? Yeah. It wasn't for yeah. Michael or Crossberry. Okay. Yeah. And the highest in terms of casualties, what was the incidents that were creating the biggest death toll during the during the the phase of the revolution that was actually guerrilla insurgency was close quarter assassination. Okay. Right. It was pistols. Okay. It wasn't this battle image. Yeah. Um, the flying columns. Yeah. And a lot of a lot of what we uh, this framework, it's from memoirs. Um, like your know, guerrilla days in Ireland, or you know, mm. um, my fight for Irish freedom, and then you have the the Bureau of, of uh, Military History, which is um, I would say again in that sort of sort of memoir memoir genre. And of course, the classic example um, is Tom Barry, right? Mm. Like who must be the most written about and talked about figure of the revolution, certainly post nineteen sixteen. Both people bigging him up and people tearing him mm. down. Um, as far as I know, it has only been very recently, and very recent research that has brought to light Tom Barry's career as Tom Barry's first steps into the Irish Revolution, which was as, as a campaigner for the rights of uh, British Army veterans. Yeah, right. Which, right. oh yeah, the first the first place that you'll see Tom Barry um, in the uh, in the newspapers is on uh, Remembrance Sunday. Yeah. Remembrance Sunday giving a speech saying that um, it's important that people who've served King and country basically in the army 
um, are, 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 are get meaningful employment now that they're back yeah. in city Street. You've only known that about that, like, uh, there's, a guy, there's a guy, um, uh, Jerry White, writing about it, and uh, John Dorney had an article on the Irish Study, uh, the Irish Story website. Mm. Because, now part of what's going on there is people form coherent narratives out of their pasts for present-day purposes, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, for example, earlier you guys were interviewing me about my political involvements, okay? Mm-hmm. And my first... Um, the way I presented it was my first political involvement was in 1991 about the demonstrations um, against Gulf War Mark One, because mm. I can form a nice story as how that fits in with what I'm doing in the subsequent decades, like in 2001, 2002, 2003, yeah. where I'm quite involved in anti-war activism, right? Yeah. The first public meeting I ever went to was uh, Donald Woods and the uh, South African journalist was speaking at it. And um, the the dissident who who had to flee South Africa and had was friends with Steve Biko, Steve um, Biko yeah. who was in Quite Freedom, right? He was the people yeah. Quite Freedom, the Hollywood a Hollywood movie, which I think came out in nineteen eighty eight. So that's uh, he was in Ireland at some stage shortly after that, and I can remember um, um, our school teacher brought us primary school teacher brought us the class to see Quite Freedom. And yeah. Now I didn't make any mention of that in while I was being interviewed, right? Now, maybe having gone to, like, having seen Cry Freedom in 1988, gone to the Donald Woods talk and all that, would mm. seem more significant to me now if what I was doing now was involved in solidarity work with people in direct provision centres, okay? Yeah, yeah. But instead, yeah. my story is 1991, the Gulf War demonstrations. Yeah. Because I have to think back about that from today's perspective, right? So that's, mm. that's one part of it. And another another part of it is like, I mean, Victor's write the history books. Yeah. Yeah. You may have different rulers, you'll still be breaking stones. Mm. A good example of this is the uh, Ennis United Labourers Union. Okay. It was one of the it was uh, one of these few small local unions around the country which didn't join the uh, transport union in 1917-1923. And which also was still around in subsequent years, right? So they were actually the organization that's, that was pivotal to the general strike in support of the political prisoners in Mount Joy who were on hunger strike in 1920, okay, in Ennis, right? They were the people that were leading the Ennis demonstration, right? And like, where were they in the 1930s? Well, in 1934, they were having a local general strike for employment rights, okay? They were one of the few organizations, local organizations from that period who were still around in later, in, in later times. Their constituency was not the people who inherited the new state. Mm. So their constituency was not the people who were making the history of the new state. And so they vanished from the history in a sense, or yeah. at least they're underplayed yeah. completely. They're underplayed, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But coming at it from a social science point of view, like the definition of revolution involves mass participation. Okay, it's mass mm. participation is one of the things, as well as multiple sovereignty. Uh, multiple sovereignties or dual power, as uh, as, uh, as people on the left call it. Mm. It it isn't just a military event. Okay, if it was just a military event, how do you distinguish it from a coup d'état or a foreign invasion or whatever? Right. Yeah. Even the most military revolutions. Yeah. Like, even if I was making, if I framed this in such a way as to make the argument difficult for myself by mm. looking at 
China, the Chinese Civil War, the Russian Civil War. Okay, mm. you'd be in the same you'd be in the same boat. And during the Chinese Civil War, what was uh, uh, decisive was that people from the Kuomintang or the mm. so-called nationalists switched sides to go over to the so-called communists. And I, I don't mean like just individual soldiers. I mean entire divisions. Yeah. Mm. So the the Chinese Red Army was actually armed by the Americans, right? And you can't just encompass that in a kind of a military history perspective, right? Likewise, the Russian Revolution, again, a very kind of military, eventually became a quite a military event. There was a, there was a civil war, okay? Mm. But what was decisive in that civil war was, one, the Bolsheviks were in control of the kind of industrial, or more industrial urban central parts of the parts of the, uh, of the empire. Like, mm. why was that? Well, I mean, it's because they had working class support. Right, yeah. and that was where the working class was. First of all, that's how they control the important parts of the uh, the country from the get go. Secondly, as the whites would advance into those areas, the whites would be subjected to um, partisan attacks. As the reds advanced into the white areas, the reds weren't. Yeah, was the decisive factor there being is even if you didn't, if you even if you were a Russian peasant and you didn't support the Bolsheviks, yeah, mm. you sure as hell didn't support the other. Well, yeah. A political question more than simply a question uh, of guns, because what the potency of a revolution is in how much it, or in terms, the potency of any movement is in how much it, it generalizes and influences broader and broader layers of the of the population more so mm. than its potency lying in guns. It's one one point you make which I think is really persuasive is the idea that, and you're saying this apart parts of I think the West Coast. Uh, and Kildare as well, actually, I think in Meath, parts of Meath, where during the revolutionary period, in commas, there's much less republican activism than one might expect. But then you look at it and you say, but there's a lot of uh, agrarian labour activism. And so it's almost as if you're saying like this, because you, the way you bring in the, uh, the, the British regiments, the Irish regiments in the British army, who of course are all disbanded then, or largely, you know, the ones from the south were disbanded. It's almost as if, and I don't know if I'm going too far out on a stretch here, but that you're saying this was a wave of revolution across, well, globally, that encompassed so many different parts of the planet. And in some respects, we see the same issues coming up again and again in relation to land, land reform, land redistribution, colonialism, the impact of the same, which means that in some respects, an Irish soldier in an Irish regiment in the British Army is part of a process which also encompasses an IRA volunteer, which also encompasses an agrarian activist in the West, etc., etc., and, of course, encompasses those, say, in India who are resisting British imperialism at that point in time. Is, is that over-making your case, or do you think that is at least part of it? No, I guess that, that's kind of... That's the pretty much the nail on the, nail on the head, yeah. Um, it... I kind of I kind of fell into looking at the Irish regiments because I mean what I'm what I'm in, interested in is kind of like the Peers and Sheep is a sort of a side project, but my main research is agrarian social movements, right? Mm. Uh, in the in the Irish past, and if you're interested in that, um, like it's a difficult place um, for an outsider to read about, um, but it's got a lot of very good scholarship written yeah. in the English language on agrarian social conflict. In India, right? So I happened to uh, to uh, to be reading about the Malabar Rebellion, um, which was the uh, the sort of Muslim peasant uprising. This features in the third podcast, 
and hey, there's this guy's called the Leinster Regiment in it. And yeah. I, I wasn't even sure there was a Leinster Regiment at the, uh, at the time. Yeah, sure, I'd heard of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers and the Royal yeah. Fusiliers. So I started, reading, I started reading up on it then uh, from that perspective. Um, and, I also, and then I kind of realised that this was a this was a a way to tell the story of there being a process of worldwide revolution and counter revolution going on yeah. at the same time, of which Ireland was a part, and like there's a connected story there, and there's a compar- there's a comparative there's a comparative story. I, like um, uh, you can say that that. Um, do you know Sinn Féin are not necessarily that different from Congress? Um, looking at Congress in India um, also gives you more of appreciation of um, some of the stuff that went on in Ireland in terms of like um, civil disobedience or mm. people resigning from the uh, police or from the magistracy because that was what Congress was all about. That was their main tactic. And actually, mm. the Irish were doing that quite effectively, but for some reason they decide to put forward this, well, not for some reason, for lots of reasons, but they decide to put forward this military image instead. And in terms of like the locality, to bring things back into Ireland, yeah, there's this, there's actually a diversity there. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a regional diversity of what's going on in the the 1920s, but that's actually always the way with, um, with, 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 with Irish history. Like Irish history is kind of sewn together to create this like national story. You know, and mm. um, there's two anthropologists, um, uh, Silverman and Gulliver, who did a brilliant study of uh, Thomastown, and I would, um, the, the, there was a couple of books, um, out of it, uh, urge anyone with an interest in, in in working class history of Ireland, particularly provincial and rural Ireland, to uh, to check them out. But they have a great chapter talking about how Irish history is sewn together, sewn together through from lots of different like local histories and regional history yeah and like once they started looking at thomastown lots lots of things that are supposed to happen in Irish history were never happening in thomastown right <laughs> and and that's the way the that's the way it is with the red the, the revolution as well there's um the guerrilla insurgency was fairly localized to uh monster and monster also had you know a militant labor movement as well I wouldn't be unduly sympathetic towards republicanism, um, mm. to put it uh, to put it mildly, but mm. I wouldn't contrast, say, the labour movement or agrarian protest with republicanism. When you go out to the rural areas and you're talking about farm workers and so forth, mostly you're talking about the transport union, and the transport union was a republican separatist organisation. And mm. as a matter of fact, in the years leading up to the to the to to, to the lockout, if you were uh, reading your Republican separatist message, you were more more likely to be seen in the Irish Worker, the Transport Union's newspaper, than anywhere else. It was better right, yeah. than um, than the, the than the Sinn Fein newspaper, and of course Sinn Fein were, were monarchist at the time. Yeah. Also, like they were not just it wasn't just wages and improved working conditions. They they they, they were fighting for. They were supporting. They were part of the anti-conscription protests, part of the protests mm. in support of political prisoners. In the case of the National Union of Railwaymen, not uh, refusing to transport British British soldiers and British munitions, mm. and one of the things that's that, that that like would take you back, even knowing history and coming from a left a left perspective, so looking at the Transport Union publications is how explicitly socialist they were. Okay, right. And in a very diverse 
in a very kind of diverse and eclectic way, right? Mm. Like they could be talking about the cooperative movement one day, some kind of like British Labour Party, social democratic tradition the next, mm. Italian workplace occupations the next, but it was putting forward a socialist message. So if you were reading their newspaper and you were in Meath or Carlow or Wexford or Waterford, it was a very much, a very, very much revolutionary message you were get uh, that was being put across in it, and also in terms of the more kind of small farmer agrarian protest, which was concentrated in the West but went on it mm. in other places as well. Like officially, the Republican movement wasn't supposed to be involved in it. Okay, yeah. Um, local companies, certainly in Galway, were doing their own thing. Yeah, I think the Republican movement the the capital or Republican movement was very much divided by um, by agrarian protest. Right. Oddly, when you come to the civil war in free state and that time, you get a more repressive policy being brought in towards the labor movement. But when you're more mm. in the early days, 1919, 1919, 1920, they're, they're, they're able to live together with the, uh, with the transport, with the labor movement more. And they take a more repressive line Towards agrarian protest, towards small farmer protests, which is an inter- right. interesting, uh, an interesting distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Though, do you also imply like that uh, the state itself, the free state, began to, in a sense, have a turn towards the small farmers and kind of ignoring the situation of the individual or well, the group of um, agrarian workers who are more isolated, anatomized. That seems to be the implication of what you're saying as related to various aspects of the free state post-22, yeah, yeah. Um Well, there's 20, like up to about 20% of farmland is redistributed by the the, the, the free state, right? Yeah. We often we often have the, like, the, the way, like the simple narrative of Irish history is, it's that, you know, there was the land war, that was settled, then there was 1916 and all that jazz, okay? Yeah. In 1916, a third of farmers were still tenants, okay? Um, and there was still a big issues around the distribution of farmland. Mm. And there was, a, there, was, there was fairly radical redistribution done um, even in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Um, yeah, they did, they, did, they, they did attempt, I think, to appeal to that constituency in a way that they didn't seem to do with farm workers in mm. Western and East Munster. Okay, and mm. um, they did continue the public housing program, which uh, had started under 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 the British, and was a significant uh, significant social reform. But there was no; it wasn't until the late nineteen thirties that there was any kind of wage wage arbitration boards or anything brought in for for farm labourers under the under under the free stage. I think my gut instinct is they were more afraid of what was going on in the West of Ireland. Okay. Uh, right. I think they knew Irish history, okay? And they looked back through the 19th century and they were like, you know, the situation that we face as regards the kind of agrarian small farmer mobilization was potentially explosive. Yeah. In a way that in a way that agrarian labor wasn't in a sense. Yeah, well, you see the, the thing is there's a kind of a zero sumness, okay, to mm. the to the um to the land protest in a way that there isn't to the labor protest, okay? Like in the labor protest, you're always kind of in a position of negotiation, all right? Mm. And you're in a position of negotiation failing, right, you know, 
socialism. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and once you had a situation where the slump came and what the situation of compulsory tillage was removed, there wasn't the big demand for labor on farms that there had been previously. Yeah. So things were tipped back in a direction that was uh, not favorable to, uh, to employees. You were able to have this repression by the, uh, by the free state authorities mm. to put a dampener on, on, on that movement. You still then had some attempt to incorporate that constituency, right? Mm. Um, in a kind of clientelist way mm. through the Labour Party, okay? My gut instinct on it then is that uh, is, is the situation as, regard, as, regards, um, as regards the demands for redistribution of land from, coming from small farmers, it could be incorporated into the agricultural model of the free state in that yeah. those small farmers were just were going to be producing producing the store cattle that we're going to be going to meet, right? And on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was also seen as something um, as something threatening. Certainly when you look you look at um Hogan, the then Minister of Agriculture's uh, documents from around about the 1922, 1923 period, yeah, he he's very happy to repress the workers' movement. Okay. Yeah. There was one incident yeah. in South Kildare where um he gets a list of people to be picked up for by given to him by the Irish Farmers Union, a list mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, labor activists, um, and he supplies that to the Ministry of uh, Defence or to the to the army to then go and have these people arrested. Some of them were arrested and imprisoned. I don't know how many people, right? But right. when he's expanding profusely on the need for a repressive policy, it's the small farmer protests, the cattle drives, that he's really like, we have to go in here, in here right. hard. And um, I mean, they do. Um, they set up a, a special infantry corps, a particular mm. gendarmerie, just for labour and agrarian protests, and um, like he's quite explicit, saying that like the problem with the English is they were too liberal, right? Now we're going to show them how it's done. I'm par- paraphrasing slightly there, and um, like they did, um, yeah, they certainly bent the law. Um, like there was there's one in- in- incident in um, Clare where a woman from the um, landed class um was kidnapped in an agrarian in an agrarian dispute okay mm. and now just for the, the background to this you've got to remember the lot like we have this image of the landlord and the tenant but a lot of landlords were farmers as well okay and mm. um, i mean even you go back to early 19th century 20 percent of land was actually in landlords own hands their own domains their own farms so the target was uh, for a lot of the protests in 19 say in the 1920 period was these Big farms that were still owned by landlords. So that's where mm. this this woman, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Crow, was coming from, right? So mm. she was uh, kidnapped by kind of local agrarian activists, right? Right. What happened then was suspects were kidnapped by someone else, right? So a unit, the Free State Army or Special Infantry Corps, haven't done the full research on it yet. Rounded up, them. rounded up local usual suspects probably and took them to mm. uh, took them to a secret prison so uh the free state was certainly doing stuff that was not a uh, was not according to the rule, rule of law as of course the, the british state had been doing a couple of years yeah. before to a uh, to a greater extent but if you go back uh, hogan's point with 
how we're going to be more repressive than the, uh, yeah. the English was relating back more to a to a, to an earlier period to, to more like the 19th century or earlier 20th century yeah during the revolution obviously the British were uh, British were quite uh, were quite repressive yeah yeah it sounds and it sounds like there you're seeing the sharp edges of what tends in Ireland to be kept usually in the background you know sort of parts of a class war in a sense and you know oh um I'd say in 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 in, in the in Leinster East Munster and more of the Connacht counties what was going on in the rural areas in, in 1920, 1921 into 23 was, yeah, it was class war um, yeah. more than um, more than anything else. I just wouldn't, um, I yeah, just wouldn't yeah. necessarily contrast that with republicanism because Republicans yeah, yeah. Were, um, were involved, like both straightforward Republicans in the IRA would be involved in this stuff on both sides. You say a few minutes ago about, like, in some respects, some of the agrarian agitation... Later on, we see it expressed in the context of clientelism with the Labour Party. And I'm just wondering, it seems implausible it just dissipated completely, but because there was an energy there, a momentum there, and traditions, or at least a historical experience of pushing back. Yeah. Do you think that that, I mean, do you think there's even an aspect of that that continued into the more contemporary period, or do you think it, it, it did just sort of melt away, as it were? Or what's your feeling about that? Okay, well, there, my, my point with clientelism was that, um, just to say that the rural working class wasn't completely disregarded in the new state, that they did have, like, the Labour Party there to, to, to represent them. And they did, like, there was a continuation of the public um, housing programme. And then in some places, and for some people, it would be represented um, through, uh, through Fianna Fáil. So there was some degree of attempt to incorporate that uh, constituency, I think there was more of an effort on uh, incorporating the small farmers. Um, mm. But in terms of it dissipating, or in terms of all this energy, energy and kind of radicalness being there and then dissipating, as regards to the rural, the rural, um, rural labour and, and, and East Munster and Leinster, there's a specific situation there in terms of demand for labour, okay? And because of compulsory tillage to do with the First World War, Farm workers in dispersed in a load of different farms where there's not they're not possessors of rare skills, right? Mm. That have a lot of marketplace bargaining power. Okay, they're not all grouped together where they can form um, a strong association necessarily that e- that easily, like say car workers or, or mm. coal miners. They're easy to be replaced. Okay, mm. so they're a group that's very difficult to have for them to form a strong movement. And yeah. they did for a period, I would say, in, in fairly special circumstances. But that rural labour mobilisation does map on to where the Labour Party had representation in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s quite well. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you guys might, might know better exactly um, who was being elected when. But my understanding of it is the constituencies that have the longest history of um, consistently returning uh, Labour Party TDs would be constituencies in that kind of rural Leinster, East Munster area, not actually in Dublin. Yeah, in Dublin, it's more from the 1940s on. But I think um, in, say, like Kildare, it's more from the 1920s mm. on. So you have that. There is a legacy left there. Mm. Um, also, there's another period of 
of the organization of farm workers in the late 1940s as well, where the Workers Union of Ireland set up a uh, federation of rural workers. Right, yeah. And there are accounts of that. Um, there was a there was a lockout again in 1947 in uh, South Kildare that a, a very good unpublished, um, fortunately unpublished MA thesis about it, an account of it in Wicklow written by one of the guys who was the organizer, an organizer for the Federation of Rural Workers. Now, there's two things there. The guy who wrote the account in Wicklow, he talks about there being an apprehension there because people could remember the 1920s. And the 1920s didn't end with a success story. It ended in defeat. It ended in um, a, a bitter dispute in Waterford, in South Kildare, and in uh, Ballangarry. And what happens if you were the person who raised your head too far above the parapet mm. in 1920, 1921? You think in these like small, intimate, local communities, people aren't going to remember in 1925, 1926, 1927, when you need to come to them for a job. People are going to remember, yeah? And you're going to be the guy being victimised. If it felt that you were going somewhere with your red flag in 1920, it didn't feel like a good idea to be rising a red flag in 1925. Yeah. Like this is this is the reality of uh, of being dependent upon selling your uh, selling your labour power to survive. And when you where you do see the movement continuing, it's in a couple of places to have that are that are that are particular. You know, mm. like. Castle Comer, for example, where you have the revolutionary workers groups in the uh, 1930s. But there you have a particular kind of concentration of a proletarian constituency because you've got the coal mines and it's a big, in terms of rural land, it's a a big workplace. Um, Or in in Ennis, where I was talking about earlier. You've mentioned before with the podcast that you've broadened up the expanse of it. You're going to be looking at... uh, quite interesting new areas that you've mentioned before. Now, there's another angle as well. You, you, you've mentioned as well publication. Would you like to talk about that? So I'm working on an um, edited volume at the moment, a, a collection of essays, which I'm working with with uh, John Cunningham of uh, NUI Galway, yeah. which, were, which will be out next year. And it's a collection of local studies of different aspects of the Irish Revolution with that focus on popular mobilization and the Irish Revolution from below. Mm. And it's entitled The Spirit of Revolution. And it comes from a quote from Lloyd George, who was the uh, last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And he's talking, he talks about how a spirit of revolution is coming across Europe. And uh, in uh, some countries like Italy and Germany, it takes the, the form of open rebellion. And in other countries like France and Britain, it takes the form of wage disputes where people are not just, which are not just about wages, but how, are about how people are questioning the whole um, pre-war social order. And so, yeah, we've got local studies, local case studies of a diverse range of events and movements that were that were that were part of the uh, of the revolution, um, including. I hope I, I don't leave anyone out. The uh, town tenants movement in uh, Galway and uh, the Galway Soviet of 1922, women's activism in Kerry, the Belfast Labour Party, the miners in Castle Comer, the uh, United 
Irish Plot Holders Union, which was uh, an agitation among urban uh, allotment owners, the uh, Dublin Dock Workers and the IRA, the uh, IRA in a particular local, an IRA company in a particular local area in Mayo, farm workers in Sligo, myself talking about farm workers in Kildare and Dublin, the Creamery Soviets, women trade unionism, or women's trade unionism. Um, now, doubtless, I have um, forgotten uh, at least one or two of the contributors for which I uh, apologise. Uh, there'll also be agrarian agitation in the West of Ireland and the small farmers movements. Right. All based on local case studies, yeah. And I would encourage people to look at the local newspapers um, for this period, yeah. When the local study section of your library reopens, that's uh, Pier Street if you're in Dublin. Of course, if you're in Dublin, you can go to the National Library of Ireland as well. But your in your county town, to, in the library, there will be a local studies section. Yeah. To research the Irish Revolution, just go in there and look at the newspapers of the time to find out the history of your local area, and you could be writing about it. The local newspapers give ample coverage to things like the cattle drives in Roscommon and Galway in spring and summer in 1920, or to the to the to the farm labour strikes. Um, I was talking about earlier as well. That's fantastic. So this comes out next year? Yeah, this comes out next year with uh, Four Courts Press. Fantastic. Listen, Terry, thanks a million. Okay, thanks, yeah, thanks for having, so much for having me um, on the podcast. <laughs>